0: Well, if you will, church, take your Bibles and turn to Nehemiah one more time, Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah 13, our final time in this book for now, uh, as we've been making our way through Nehemiah. Nehemiah's there in the Old Testament, about halfway through the Old Testament. And so find your way there to Nehemiah chapter 13 for our final time together in this series. Starting next week, we're going to begin a four-week series uh, called Miraculous uh, as we look at some of the miracles in the Gospel of John leading us up to Easter. And so we're looking forward to that time going back to the New Testament, spending some time there uh, before we head on to the next series in May. And so looking forward to that next week as we turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 2, for next week. But for now, we are in Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 13, as we consider What the Lord would have for us today from this passage. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. We're going to be reading the text as we go through the sermon today. And so I want us to pray now for our time together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving it to us, for revealing it, uh, that we may have it and know it and hear from you. So, Lord, as we look now to this text, would you instruct us by it that our lives would look more and more like you and that you would be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We are a people enamored with diets. Now, I say that as largely a good thing, sometimes a bit overkill, but mostly a good thing. But the thing with a diet is that while it will help you be healthier and perhaps lose weight, it's something that has to be maintained. A diet is something that really reforms your whole approach to eating and therefore healthiness. It's not a six weeks and done kind of thing, right? Probably why I've never been big on diets myself. A diet is about establishing new routines and rhythms to how you eat so you can maintain good health, good weight for the long term. And you know what happens. Think about what happens if you bail. If if you're the six weeks and done kind of person, after six weeks, what happens? You start to, if you just throw it to the side and just say, hey, I did a diet for six weeks, and you go back to old ways of eating, you start to pack on that weight again. You start to lose a sense of healthier lifestyle. Well, if we were comparing the revival that broke out in Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day to a diet, by the time we get to chapter 13, They're no longer counting calories. They've thrown it to the sides. There's a period of time that transpires between chapter 12 and chapter 13 in the book of Nehemiah. Not sure how long, we're not told exactly how long takes place between chapter 12 and chapter 13, but according to verses 6 and 7, as we will see in just a moment, Nehemiah had left Jerusalem, he had been given permission to go and be governor of of Judah and and to lead this rebuilding effort in Jerusalem, and he had been given permission for up to 12 years, and now he, after that 12 years had expired, being a man of his word, he goes back to Persia, back to Babylon, and continues his life and his work there. His work in Jerusalem had been finished, and we're not sure how long had, had, had gone by, a couple years, maybe longer even, Uh, Before Nehemiah once again returns, he once again requests permission to take leave from Persia to go back to Jerusalem to see how God's people are and to help further them along in their renewal. But when he returns to Jerusalem, things are not good. Not good at all. He finds the revival that had broken out in chapters 9, 10, 11, and 12 has soured, And the people have returned largely to their old ways. If I'm being honest, this last chapter of Nehemiah is difficult. It's disappointing. But it's likely the most important chapter of the book. It's important because it leaves us with a realistic picture of spiritual struggle. That's why I like the Bible so much. It's not some fairy tale fantasy, it's real, it's realistic. It exposes you to people and groups of people that wrestle with real life things. Real tragedy, real brokenness, real sinfulness, disappointment, and so forth. But it does so in a way that gives us hope, right? When we think about this chapter, really the the big idea that it kind of reminds me of is this, that faithfulness to the Lord is a lifelong battle that requires gospel-empowered perseverance. This final chapter leaves us with really three things. It leaves us with a warning, a reminder, and a hope. That's what I want us to walk through this morning, a a warning, a reminder, and a hope. As we pick up with this passage, let's begin with the warning, a somber warning, we could call it. Look with me at Nehemiah chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashab, the priest who was pointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time... I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, and then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. So as I said, Nehemiah had gone, and now he returns to find what he finds. You know, I'm reminded from the New Testament, we've probably looked at this verse a couple times before already in this series, back in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, where Paul says, whatever was written in former days, referring to the Old Testament, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Right? Old Testament's purpose is for our instruction and our enjoyment so that through endurance and through encouragement by the scriptures, we might have hope. But you read passages like this, and it's not very encouraging or hope-filled, is it? At times, it's quite discouraging. And that's exactly what we have here in chapter 13 when Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem. After spending several chapters celebrating this great revival, we find here in chapter 13 that this revival was no more and the people have largely returned to their old ways. It's honestly a a sad scene because historically historically speaking, chronologically speaking, this is the last picture of Israel we have in the Old Testament history before you get to the New Testament. So oftentimes you'll hear people say the Old Testament doesn't end so well. (laughs) It doesn't. But in that vein, it also serves for us as a warning. What we have here is a people who knew the promises of God, a people who knew and experienced the blessings of God and yet a people who Time after time after time again, return to patterns of compromise and unfaithfulness that, le- that leaves a spiritual void in Israel once again. The warning here really is a lesson for us on the dangers of spiritual drifts. How does God's people go from a celebratory revival and renewal, signing their name to a covenant saying, we're in, we're promising to do these things, just in a few short years, back to lifestyles of faith, unfaithfulness. Well, there are several things that, that stick out. Two things in particular I want us to see that leads to this. We could list more, but these are two things from this text that we see. First of all, we see that spiritual drift occurs when God's holiness is no longer a priority. Spiritual drift occurs when God's holiness is no longer a priority. When we read chapter 13, the situation in Jerusalem is very different from where we left it in chapter 12. Again, when Nehemiah returns, we don't know how long, there's all kinds of speculation. Some say it's a year or two, some say it could be up to eight, 10, 12 years even. So there's, there's it just, Nehemiah just tells us, right? After some time, there's been a period of time, years that have transpired, when he returns to Jerusalem and he finds this this situation. Now there's a lot of ink spilt on how verses one through three fit with the rest of the chapter because it just seems a little bit disjointed or out of place. But most suitable answer seems to be that the verses one through 13, the reading of the law where they hear likely from Deuteronomy 23 that the Moabites and the Ammonites were not to be part of the assembly of God is likely a period of time after these reforms have taken place in Nehemiah chapter 13. You see that from verse four. Now before this, they kind of do a flashback of what Nehemiah had found. So that's likely the context. But again, Nehemiah returns and he he sees something. I want you to notice here, first of all, several things that we're gonna see, but the first thing we see is this, this idea of temple neglect, which is an indicator of them no longer prioritizing the holiness of God. You see that in verses four through nine. When, when Nehemiah comes back, he, he finds the temple, the temple of God, really had been converted into an Airbnb for Tobiah. One of Israel's enemies, you remember Tobiah? He's the same dude, right? Back in the first part of Nehemiah that had been jeering and had been, had been making fun of Israel and and threatening Israel, an enemy of God's people. An enemy of God's people now has a bedroom in the temple. That's pretty significant. Apparently, someone from Eliashib's family and Tobiah had married, and they have now become relatives. So Eliashib cleaned out one of the storage rooms of the temple where by command they had been given places of storage for all of the the resources needed for temple worship. And now one of these rooms has been cleared out and made into Tobiah's guest room. If you jump down to verse 28, we also see that the grandson of Eliashib the high priest had married a daughter of Sanballat. Remember Sanballat and Tobiah, these were the enemies, the primary enemies jeering God's people, making fun of them, threatening them, offering to, to destroy them. Now they had married into their families. God's people had. So when Nehemiah shows up and finds out about all of this, obviously he's not happy. The text tells us he's very angry. So what does he do? He becomes so angry that he tosses out all of Tobiah's furniture. You see that in verse eight. And then he has the chambers cleansed and the items returned. We're we're just getting started to what, what Nehemiah does and what he finds. But this one's a big deal. God's temple, the place where God dwelt, his presence was to be experienced and worship was, be, was to be uh, enjoyed. There in the middle of the temple, right there in the place God had assigned for all of these sacrificial activities it's clearly been neglected. The temple was no longer serving as the function and purpose for which God intended it. It shows that a shift had taken place with the people's understanding of God. The temple was the place where God's holiness was to be the priority, and now the enemies of God's people were sleeping there. In fact, you see that later on in verse 10, he, he, he goes on to ask, why is the house of God forsaken? You compare that back to chapter 10, verse 39. Go back to chapter 10, just flip over a page. Look at verse 39. This is when people are experiencing renewal and revival. It says, for the people of Israel, the sons of Levi, shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Chapter 13, verse 10, Nehemiah is back. Why? Verse 11, why is the house of God forsaken? The temple was no longer being used for religious purposes, honoring God's character and holiness. Brothers and sisters, this is a great reminder that when we grow complacent towards the holiness and righteousness and goodness of God, complacency will take root compromise takes root. This has been clear, this has been a clear pattern throughout the history of Israel. This this cycle of renewal and rebellion, renewal and rebellion, renewal and rebellion. Sound like your own heart? It's a cycle, this vicious cycle where they do good for a while, but give them enough time, and here they are again. People who encountered God's holiness firsthand, now neglected outright. I think, brothers and sisters, the same lesson is true for us. When we take our eyes off the majesty, the glory, the holiness of God, anything goes. Anything. And it shows up in practical ways. It shows up in our own lack of pursuing personal holiness. Remember Be holy as I am holy, the Lord commands. It shows up in a lack of priorities with regard to the Christian community and your responsibility to fellow brothers and sisters. It shows up in our day-to-day living and decision-making. On and on we could go. I mean, we could just list. I mean, neglect God's holiness, everything, everything goes. Notice just from Nehemiah's perspective as he comes back and sees all of this, he responds in it's what many would say would be righteous anger. He's, he's upset. He's angry that the house of God has been neglected. And I'll just I think it's a good question to pause and ask. Does, does a disregard for God's holiness around you ever lead you to respond in this righteous kind of way? Do you ever grow burdened over a lack of recognition of God's holiness. I, I'm not saying in the world because we should not expect the world to, to we shouldn't expect uh, unconverted people to delight in the holiness of God, right? It doesn't surprise me or shock me when the world is not worshiping God for His holiness. I'm not about when the people of God have abandoned, neglects it, no longer hold highly the reverence of God. See, spiritual drift occurs when that becomes no longer when that when when that's no longer a priority. But a second thing that we see in this passage is that spiritual drift occurs when God's word is abandoned. What you're going to find in the next bit of in the next bit of scripture, and I'm going to read, are three additional things that had been neglected that show that, that really are symptoms of a greater problem. Let's pick up in verse 10. So this is after he kicks Tobiah out. Verse 10. I also found out the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then Judah brought the tithe. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shalamiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Padiah of the Levites, and of their assistants, Hanan, the son of Zachar, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God for this service. So the very first thing that you see here in this passage, it's not the first thing, the temple's been neglected was the first thing. The second thing really that we see is that tithing had been abandoned, they were no longer giving to the work of temple ministry. He finds that out. And, and the reason he knows that is that the, the Levites and all of the, the, the temple servants that were largely funded through the giving of these tithes, they had to go back out to the, outside of the city, back to farming to take care of their own needs. They didn't have money to support their families, they didn't, their, their livelihoods. They, they were broke. Because the people had quit giving, so they're back out in the fields farming. So Nehemiah corrects that. He confronts it directly. He calls the officials together. He reinstitutes the tithe. He he calls them back to obedience in this way. But notice a second thing that we, we see here. We see that the Sabbath had been profaned. Pick up in verse 15. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, "What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath." As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside of Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. He's not messing around. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. The next problem Nehemiah confronts is the laxity that had grown concerning Sabbath day. Again, the Sabbath was a big part of their identity as God's people. It was commanded to them that they were to keep the the Sabbath day holy by ceasing from work, buying, trading, selling, etc. It was to be a day of rest as they looked to the Lord to trust in him and for for him to provide for their needs. But now when Nehemiah comes back on the scene, the Sabbath day looked like any other day. Not only were outsiders of Israel, the, the other nations coming in, buying and selling and trading, Israel was participating in the same as well. It was just another, another day. And so as Nehemiah observes all that took place there on the Sabbath, he confronts the people in verses 17 through 18. He reminds them that profaning the Sabbath was one of the very things that had resulted in their exile that they have just returned from, rebuilt the city, rebuilt the temple. They've just lived they've just seen this city destroyed and being taken captive. And one of the big reasons was because they were profaning the Sabbath day, not to mention that they were worshiping other idols, other gods. And here they are, doing it again. So he takes action. He shuts the doors of the city on the Sabbath. He threatens to lay hands on those who are buying and selling. So what you have is this scene, right? Right? Nehemiah's dealing with all of the Sabbath breaking. He shuts the doors on the Sabbath day. And here comes the buyers, the sellers, the traders, right? The, the, the people who are doing all the buying, selling, or selling and trading in the temple. Many of them are outsider visitors, uh, outsiders of Israel. There are other nations coming to do that. And they show up and the gates are shut. And they're like, well, we'll just camp outside and maybe they'll just, we'll just wait them out. And Nehemiah says, no, I'm going to lay hands on you if you come again. And so they quit. They, they go away. So this is exactly what he he re-institutes the Sabbath day as a day of observance, practice. But then the notice number three, they had allowed intermarriage to take place. Look at verse 23. In those days also, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them, and cursed them, and beat some of them, and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there were no king like there was no, no king like him, and he was beloved by God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him even to sin. Shall we, shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? We know that Israel had been given a clear command for the people of Israel not to marry, intermarry with, other, with people from other nations. It was forbidden in Deuteronomy chapter 23, with, specifically with regard there, you see a reference to it in verses 1 through 3 of this chapter, likely meditating on Deuteronomy 23, where they were specifically forbidden to intermarry with people from Ammon, the Ammonites, and the Moabites. There's reasons given for that. Ammon was, was, was a group that had refused Israel bread. They were making their way out of Egypt and on their way through the wilderness. The Ammonites refused to feed them, and they, they started to battle against them. The Moabites had sent a prophet to curse Israel at one time. God, had that, God turned that one around, and, and it became a blessing. And so, particularly with Ammon and Moab, there were some reasons given earlier in the, in the history of Israel as to why these particular nations weren't allowed to intermingle with the people of Israel. And not only that, they were idolaters. Again, we, we see this, and in, in our modern ears, all kinds of red flags go up, right? This was not, we need to clarify, this was not a command promoting racial inequality. Not at all. It was a command to protect the purity of worship. That was the primary focus. The scripture never once elevates one race or ethnicity over another. Sadly, we've seen that throughout the course of history, but you'll never find that in the Bible. In fact, quite the contrary. The issue here, has everything to do with the purity of religious devotion. If the Israelites married people from the Ammonites and the Moabites, these were pagans and idolaters forbidden to enter the assembly of the Lord, the Lord Lord knew that they would bring in their idols and false gods into Israel's midst and the rest would be history. We've We've seen that happen before. The Lord called his people to be set apart, distinct in their devotion to him. And if they intermarried, it would, their, their their devotion to him would be undermined. So we see this intermarriage had taken place, and even within the high priest's family, you see that there in verses 28, in the beginning, there in verses 4 through 9. So what we have, I think we're still under point one, sub point two, right? What we have is the temple was not being used correctly. Tithes were no longer being given so that the priests were left unpaid, the Levites were left unpaid and having to farm. The Sabbath was no longer a day to be observed. And the nations were infiltrating the ranks through marriage. And all of a sudden, we're back to square one. Now, these particular examples are highlighted not because... Nehemiah had a particular burden for each of these. These are highlighted because each of these have a common thread. They were all clear violations of God's commands given in the law and reinstituted just a few chapters prior, several years prior now, but a few chapters before. Even, look here. Look, go back to chapter 13, verse 4. This was Nehemiah confronting Elisha, the priest, uh, with Tobiah living, look at the text. Now before this, Eliashib the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God who was related to Tobiah because of the intermarriage problem, there's one strike, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, strike two. Frankincense, the vessels, the tithes of grain which were given by commandment. Do you hear that? By commandment. By the law of God, there was a clear word from God about how to practice temple worship and they disobeyed a clear command. Even if you look on at the the children that were born through the intermarriages, verse 24, half of the children spoke the language of Ashdod and they could not speak the language of Judah. That was a problem, not because it was bad to be bilingual, the problem was they weren't bilingual. They were only speaking the language of these other nations, not of Judah and the Bible. The, old t- the scriptures were in Hebrew. They couldn't even understand the Bible. So in each case, there was a clear command of scripture to instruct the peoples in these matters, and in each case, the scripture had been set aside and ignored. Therefore, back to my point, that spiritual drift occurs not only when God's holiness is no longer a priority, but when God's word is abandoned. It didn't take long for Israel to completely go back on their promise to do all these things. It wasn't wasn't as if they just did one. They just kinda messed up in one area. All of the areas they'd been commanded in, broken them all. And it was because God's word was no longer their authority. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. I, I get that sometimes Christians will come to different conclusions on certain teachings of the Bible, secondary, tertiary matters. And as I've grown older, I've developed the ability, hopefully, to be a little bit more gracious towards those who I may not see eye to eye on in a matter of interpretation regarding secondary, tertiary matters. But that's not the issue here in Jerusalem. It's not as if God's people were sitting around opening the law of God and saying, okay, well, I see... This this is the practice we ought to practice, but somebody else saying, no, I see it this way because of this text. They didn't even open the Bible. This was not a disagreement between Israelites on how to understand the law. They had set the law aside entirely. They were no longer looking to it as some kind of authority in their lives. They had rejected it, abandoned it entirely. That was the problem. They weren't struggling to try to figure out their view of end times, They had set the Bible aside altogether. And brothers and sisters, that should serve as a somber warning to us. I've said this many times over, but that phrase that will often come up in churches, in lives of Christians, where they will say to some degree something like, I know that's what the Bible says, but that's that's a big problem when you get there. And in some ways, all of us have said that. Maybe you've not said those exact words, but your actions have demonstrated that, that, that concept. Now, that's what happens. We, we're setting aside the authority of God and we're pursuing a different authority entirely, whether that's our own reason or something else. That's why the local church is important, that's why Giving ourselves to God's word is important. Expository preaching is primary. Spiritual discipline of Bible reading and memorization is something that ought to be woven into the fabric of our lives on a regular basis, allowing the Bible to inform and influence our worldview. You see, they had drifted because God's word had been abandoned. Let that be a lesson when we forsake the holiness of God and the word of God, we are in bad trouble. That's the warning. Number two, we have a reminder, a valuable reminder. The one encouragement we see in this final chapter, and really throughout the book, is that faithfulness to God is possible because you see that in Nehemiah himself. Two things that are true of him that I think are, instru- he was not perfect. I wrestle with how to even explain to you when he uh, pulled people by their hair and cursed them and beat some of them. I'm not sure what to do with that. I'm just being honest. I think he was in, maybe in the flesh. Some people try to explain that away. Well, these were actually curses he was pronouncing from Deuteronomy and it was a public shaming and it was kind of a formal thing. Maybe that's true too. Maybe he was righteously angry. So I don't know that we could say Nehemiah is a perfect example of faithfulness. I'm not sure about that. I don't think so. But what you see is is the the rhythm of his life, the pattern of his life is instructive to us towards faithfulness. Two things that are true of him that I think that are informative to us. Number one, of how he looks to the Lord. Even though Nehemiah had been immersed in Persian culture, he was the cupbearer to the king. He was in the In the king's palace, in the king's court, he was an important person in Persia. Even though he had been immersed in this Persian culture, loyal to the Persian king, he remained steadfast in his devotion to the Lord. Throughout the book of Nehemiah, he demonstrates an unwavering reliance upon God, especially exhibited through his praying. And here again, we see that exemplified time after time again in verse 14, verse 22, verse 29, and again in verse 30, where he's crying out to God, remember me, O oh my God. Verse 14, concerning this, and do not wipe away my good deeds that I've done for the house of my God and for his service. He says that three or four other times. Remember this, O oh God. Remember this, O oh God. Remember them, God. Nehemiah is not... Praying a a prayer of selfishness there. He's pleading to God for help. He's pleading God to help in this moment of of correction and, and return to the Lord because he didn't want the efforts that he had led to be undone. It's a reminder to us that our dependence upon the Lord, our dependence upon the Lord can never be understated or undervalued. He is the source of our hope and our strength. We need him. We need the Lord. We need him. We need to look to him regularly. And that's exactly what you see in Nehemiah. A second thing that you see that's a reminder to us is this. Our work is never finished, this side of heaven. When you look at this book as a whole and you see how Israel is living and they're not walking with the Lord and then they experience this renewal and revival and now <laughs> they're back to their old ways. It's a reminder to us that our work as believers, as Christians today, as the, of the, uh, as the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ, our work is never finished. We never get to a point of saying we've arrived. No more need to fight sin. No more need to read the Bible because we know it all and apply it perfectly. No more need to reform, no more need to to pursue repentance, etc. We've kind of made it. Nehemiah teaches us that we must fight every day, month and year by the grace of God to persevere. Temptation to compromise, temptation to abandon God's word altogether is always pressing in on us, always. That's why the Holy Spirit is given to us, that's why the word of God is given to us, that's why the the church is so essential in that fight, why we must remain alert and prepared and encouraging each other and spurring each other on to love and good deeds. Brothers and sisters, our work is never finished. Your work as an individual follower of Jesus to, to, to put off the old and put on the new, to work out your salvation in fear and trembling. That's not a box you check. I'm a, I'm a box checker, right? I have a to-do list. I like to check things off. Sanctification is not one of them things that you've done. It's not. It's a lifelong journey that is, that is rich and filled with joy. It's not, it's not this... this Oh, I've got to get up and follow Jesus. Sometimes you feel like that, right? But there's a kind of blessing and joy to be found in following and, and running after Christ. And that work, friend, is never finished. You never get to a point of saying, okay, I've got it now. Never. Let that be a valuable reminder to us. And then number three, what we have here is a gospel hope. The story of Israel is a difficult one. It's filled with some victories, but a lot of sadness and disappointment. I mean, you just read, think about it. I mean, think about the chronology of the Old Testament story. Nehemiah is the end. It's the final historical reference we have about Israel before there's 400 years of silence and then Jesus burst on the scene. So chapter 13, historically speaking, chronologically speaking, is the last word we have before Jesus arrives. And here we have Israel returned from exile, rebuilt the temple and the city's walls. They've repented and they've gone through a season of revival, only to be right back in their old ways, as this story concludes. If you go back to Genesis and read from Genesis through Nehemiah, kind of the law and the history, and it's kind of a historical sketch of Israel from Genesis through Nehemiah from beginning to the end of the Old Testament. That's what you have from Genesis to Nehemiah. If you go back and read that, it's, a, it's easy to simply conclude, there's just no hope for these people, right? I mean, you read their story, and I mean, sometimes we get frustrated, don't we? You're like, how could they be so stupid, right? How? How? Pastor Mark Dever rightly summarizes it when he writes, the Old Testament paints a picture of mankind that on one level is profoundly pessimistic and we must admit, realistic. The sins they struggled with in Joshua's day were the same sins they struggled with in Nehemiah's day 1,000 years later. It's a bleak picture. But thank God it's not the final word. Even in the Old Testament, God has been laying a foundation. He's been laying the groundwork for a greater and lasting deliverance. One that never would be gained through signing of covenants or keeping the law. In fact, when you look back through Israel's history, God had given his people the law. He had given his people kings and rulers who ruled prophets who warned and priests who would represent the people before God and not one of them, not one of them were able to deliver Israel from their bondage, not one. But friends, even though none of them could bring lasting deliverance, they all pointed to one who could. The Messiah, a man who would reign as the perfect and everlasting king a man who served as prophet by being God's very word in the flesh and as the great high priest who would represent us before God because he was also the perfect sacrificial substitute as the lamb of God, the perfect atonement for sin. Jesus would be that prophet, priest, and king that would finally and fully deliver us. He would be the final sacrifice that would cleanse us. And friends, that is the hope we have. We might leave the Old Testament people struggling yet again in their darkness and in their sin. But there would come a day that Isaiah prophesied when those who were walking in darkness would see a great light. You close the book of Nehemiah and it leaves us longing for more. And as such, it therefore points us forward to God's promises being fully realized in the coming Messiah who would be that perfect prophet, priest, and king. In Nehemiah, verse 30 of chapter 13, he concludes Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I establish their duties the duties of the, of the priests and Levites, each in his work. And I provided from them wood offering at appointed times for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. Nehemiah signs off with these final remarks. And really, in summary, Nehemiah says this. He says, I cleansed, I established, and I provided. Remember me, O oh my God, for my good. But friends, even in Nehemiah's efforts to cleanse, establish, and provide, these would not be the silver bullet that led to full deliverance. It was not the the work that would fix it all. Their old ways would continue. Compromise, complacency, abandonment would, would fester and always lurk. Sin was very much part of this community. But when Jesus came, he would fully and finally declare from a wooden cross these words, it is finished. And as such, he is the only one that could say with deliberate perfection, I've cleansed, I've established, and I've provided. And as such, he secures for himself a new covenant people to live in the hopes of a new Jerusalem that would come. A new Jerusalem where there would be no more darkness, no more compromise, no more sin. A new Jerusalem that will have the new Israel, which would be a people from all tribes and all nations, tongues and languages gathered. A new Jerusalem whose gates will never have to be closed. And a new Jerusalem where the final slain lamb will also rule as our perfect eternal king who we will see and enjoy forever. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for giving us these passages that are at times perplexing, challenging, disappointing, discouraging. But oh God, you don't give them to us separate from hope, separate from the gift of your grace that we have ultimately and fully through Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, would you help us to be rightly warned from the patterns of abandonment and rebellion that we see in your people. God, help us to be warned. Let them be an example to us of of how not to go and and to be that break, that that break that just stops us and reminds us of what we must be about and what we must be pursuing. Lord, thank you for reminding us about faithfulness and helping us to, to walk in that light. Lord, also, even as we close these chapters, Lord, they are not chapters disconnected, disjointed from hope. Because Lord, you would send one who would come and who would finally and fully deliver your people once and for all. And today we celebrate that gift of grace we have in Jesus Christ, our Lord. God, thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.